1 Corinthians chapter 16. We now come to the last chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, a book that we now know as 1 Corinthians. And several thoughts or emotions may hit us as we come to this chapter. You know, after the triumphal conclusion of chapter 15, in which Paul taunts death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And Paul could do that because he had seen the resurrected Christ with a transformed body. He knew that death had been defeated. And then Paul writes toward in that conclusion, Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he calls on the Corinthians to remain firm. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And with amazing words, he concludes, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. can hardly wait to see what Paul will say next. Maybe a sense of exhilaration and wondering at what will follow. Also, the fact that we're coming toward the conclusion of his letter, depending on our temperament, you know, may also affect how we approach chapter 16. You know, some people, when they say goodbye, it's goodbye and they're gone. I have been accused of lingering my goodbyes. My wife said, we let those people go home. You keep talking to them and just keep talking and talking. Um, or, you know, in a business sense, you know, when, when a, someone is dictating a, a letter and then, you know, they come toward the letter and they're like, yada, yada, you know, fill in the rest. You know what goes there. You know, is that what we find here in chapter 16? But then at first reading, I mean, the, the sound that comes to my mind is Homer Simpson. Oh, he's going to talk about money. Because if you look at the beginning of chapter 16, now about the collection for God's people. I would suggest to you that we give Paul the benefit of the doubt. Thus far in this letter, he has been trustworthy. He has written what needed to be conveyed to the Corinthians, who had gotten so far off track as to make us wonder if they were Christians or not. And I would dare say that any of, if any of us had written to the Corinthians in response to their letter, I think we would have been a great deal harsher than Paul was. Yet Paul still refers to them as my dear brothers. So let's see what Paul has to say. First four verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Let's, let's look at this. First two words, now about. And we've seen in our study of 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 7, that we have, and this is the fifth time this appears, this expression now about. And as best we can tell, these are issues that the Corinthians wrote to Paul about. Um, so in chapter 7, verse 1, now about uh, for the matters you wrote about. Verse 25 of that chapter, now about virgins. Chapter 8, now about food sacrifice to idols. Chapter 12, now about spiritual gifts or spiritual ones. And now here, now about the collection for God's people. You may remember in our study that we've done, 
that these are matters about which the Corinthians wrote to Paul not to ask his opinion or not to get some input from him. Rather, they are matters about which they have new understandings. Paul, we know that you taught us this way, but now we understand this in an entirely different way. Certainly that was true with marriage, with meat offered to idols, with spiritual ones. I would assume that the same thing is true as well about the collection. These are not matters of question. These are matters of confrontation. So I think when we read verse number one here in chapter 16, we might think, oh, they're just asking Paul what to do about collecting money. And I would argue that that's not what they're doing at all. They think they've come to a new understanding. They're right and Paul is wrong. And now Paul is telling them basically in a very gentle way, no, actually, you people are wrong. Let me tell you what is right. I think it is important that we hear the confrontation in their writing and understand that Paul is not merely explaining, but he is correcting their bad thinking. He is correcting their bad behavior, which is a result of their bad thinking. There are authors who would disagree with me, commentators, but for me, what even, I mean, forget it that this is the fifth time it's come up and the first four have been confrontational. It is, there's another thing that seals it for me, it is the use of their word collection. Um, and to me, this indicates a hostility on their part and, and the fact that they don't see things the way that Paul does. Um, Paul has written about this matter in two or in three other places in Galatians chapter 2 and Romans 15 and then in his second letter to the Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 nowhere does he use the word collection he uses fellowship service grace blessing divine service he doesn't use the word collection which leads me to assume that that's their word okay Paul this collection business they, they put it, I think, in the crassest terms possible, something that they're really not interested in doing. And now Paul must correct their thinking and their behavior on this. What is this collection for God's people? And for the moment, we'll, we'll accept the Corinthian word and, and go with their vocabulary. What are they talking about? As I said, we find the details about this in his other letters. In Galatians 2, and Romans 15, and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. In the passage in Galatians, Paul explains how that his ministry was to the Gentiles, while Peter and others ministered to the Jews. And Paul went down and met with Peter and the apostles and James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem. And he told them, God has called me, Barnabas as well, to preach to the Gentiles. And they agreed. And we read James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars of the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, shook their hands. When they recognized the grace of God given to me, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The meeting that Paul describes happens after the events of Acts chapter 11, in which Paul, for the first time, seems to be evolving into a major player in the church. At that point, he still takes the name Saul. He and Barnabas are teachers up in Syria, the church Antioch, the first place people were called Christians. Uh, 
And they come to Jerusalem with a gift. The gift was given by the believers in Antioch, we are told, each according to his ability, to provide help for those living in Judea. Apparently, the agreement that Paul and Barnabas would go and preach to the Gentiles, the setting was that they would remember the poor. This is something that they had already done. And when Paul says that we should remember the poor, I think he means more than mental activity. He means actions which would indeed help the poor. So wherever Paul went preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, after people would converted, he would then tell them, we need, you need to collect money, you need to set aside money for the poor in Jerusalem. The question is, who are these poor and, and why are they so special? Um, why should they get special help? Why does Paul mention this uh, in his writings and in his preaching? Well, I think the two questions we can answer together. In Acts chapter 8, we are told that after the first Christian is martyred, that is Stephen, he is stoned to death, that the church scatters. That uh, people go to Samaria and to Judea. And then later in chapter 11, we are told, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So the picture we have, the main church is in Jerusalem. That's where the church had just exploded. We have 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 after that. Um, the church has just exploded. Suddenly has been hit with persecution. And so people leave. Those who can, those who have the financial power, leave. Those who don't have the ability to are pretty much stuck there in Jerusalem, along with the apostles. So the apostles and the poor, those who can't leave, are left in Jerusalem. In addition to the persecution, which leaves some stuck there, is a famine. And in fact, it is the famine that causes Paul and Barnabas to bring the gift from Antioch in chapter 11. Fine. What's the big deal about the poor in Jerusalem? Um, weren't there poor everywhere that Paul went to preach? Yes, there were. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, when Paul's writing about this, he talks about the Macedonians giving out of their extreme poverty. That is, the believers in Macedonia were not simply poor, they were extremely poor. And yet they set aside money for the poor in Jerusalem. So what is the big fuss? If we have poor people everywhere, why are we so concerned about the people in Jerusalem? By the way, you may notice that Paul doesn't talk about this. He doesn't mention it. He simply refers to it as a collection for God's people. He does mention Jerusalem in chapter 3. We know that that is the destination of the gift. So the collection for God's people. Well, aren't the Macedonians God's people? These extremely poor people? Why are we collecting money for people in Jerusalem? Interestingly enough, Paul does not explain. He does not go into the matter. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, as I've already said, he writes at length about this. He encourages them to finish what they began. But even there, he doesn't explain why it is that they should be doing this. By the way, 2 Corinthians is interesting because Paul picks up certain pieces from 1 Corinthians, and we only understand them because of 1 Corinthians. For example, the man that Paul said you need to expel him from the church because he's living in an incestuous relationship. 
Well, we find out that the Corinthians did that. But we find out in 2 Corinthians, he repented and they wouldn't let him back in. And so Paul says in chapter 2, no, this man has repented. You know, you expelled him so that he might repent. He's repented. Now let him back in. So in chapters 8 and 9, he sort of expounds on this collection for God's people. But he doesn't tell them the why. I would assume that he had done that face to face. So we have to look elsewhere for Paul's reasoning for this. And we find it in Romans chapter 15. Romans 15:27, Paul says, For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to them to share with them their material blessings. That is, the gospel came from the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. The church in Jerusalem was Jewish. The gospel went out from Jerusalem and it reached all the way to the Gentiles. So this gospel reached to the Gentiles. The spiritual blessings of the gospel had reached the Gentiles. Now, Paul says, you need to reciprocate in terms of material blessings. You have an obligation to do this. This reasoning we find earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when Paul talks about expecting material support from the Corinthians. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And I don't know about you, but such talk makes me very nervous because it smacks of merchandising the gospel. You know, I preached, therefore you need to pay me. You know, preaching for reward. Um, but we should remember what the Lord Jesus said when he sent people out, that the worker is worthy of his keep. But we will set that aside for a moment. Why is it that Paul thought, and, and James and John and Peter, why did they think that the Gentiles had an obligation to send money back to the poor in Jerusalem. What, what is their thinking in this regard? Well, I think it's based on the Old Testament, a principle in the Old Testament, the obligation to care for those in need. If you go through the, Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, but particularly Deuteronomy, you see that there is a very specific concern for the poor. So much so that God gave laws to Moses and Moses gave them to Israel with regard to the poor. And I've put them in three categories. There are others, but first of all, gleaning. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. In other words, you're tying bundles up, got all, this, all the barley, all the wheat together, and you left one there. Just leave it there. Okay? Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from the olive trees, do not go over the branches a second time. In other words, when you're beating the tree for the olives to fall, and you say, oh, there's, we, we missed some up there. Leave them up there. Okay? Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest your grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. In other words, for those who are in need. By the way, I just sort of put a parenthesis in, in here. Uh, this implies that those who can work must do so. Gleaning is back-breaking work. You're getting the stuff that the regular guys miss. So it isn't simply a handout, but you are in fact to work. And then we find in Deuteronomy 15 uh, a passage on generosity. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Give generously to him, 
and do so without a grudging heart. Interestingly enough, the next verse you may be very familiar with. There will always be poor people in the land. Remember Jesus saying that? The poor you have with you always. He's quoting from that passage. Therefore I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. Be generous. The third category, though, may surprise you, and that is in terms of tithing. When you have finished setting aside a tithe of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, You shall give it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. In other words, you give a tithe every year, but in the third year, the tithe goes to the Levites and it goes to the poor. So the principle is established in God's law that one has an obligation to those in need. But one could say, well, that's Old Testament. That's Israel. They were a nation. They were the people of God, a people. Uh, Now in the New Testament, things just seem completely different. What about the New Testament? What are God's people to do? We are to continue to help those in need, specifically those who are God's people. So Paul, in writing to to the Galatians, said, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In his first letter to Timothy, He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So there is this general principle, but here Paul is going for something even more specific. Paul is seeking to demonstrate in a tangible way the unity between Gentile believers that he's preaching to who are converted and to the Jewish believers who are stuck in Jerusalem. They don't live in the same land. They're not a part of the same political nation as such. But they do belong to God's people. They are one people. They are God's people. And I think that's why Paul refers to this not as collection, as in tax collection, but rather fellowship, a sharing, service, grace, blessing and if we had the time we could go to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 because Paul does not see this simply as a matter of money but rather as an active response to the grace of God God has been gracious to me therefore I will respond by helping those in need so what are the Corinthian believers to do well if you look in verse number 1 do what I told the Galatian churches to do and what follows Paul gives directions as to what they are to do First of all, he says, on the first day of the week. Traditionally, in church history, this is one of the three texts in the New Testament which is used to support the Christian use of of Sunday and not the Sabbath. By the way, when we say the first day of the week, we are counting from the Sabbath. Sabbath is the last day. The first day of the week is Sunday. And that phrase we find in the Gospels with regard to the resurrection of Christ. And so this was the day of worship that the Christians followed, the early church followed, based on the resurrection. And if you remember, when they come together, they have the Lord's Supper, and Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. They remember his death, they remember his resurrection when they have communion together. So on the first day of the week, Sunday, okay, 
Each one of you should set aside a sum of money. Now, this is important. I, I, I want you to get this. Paul is not saying that the money is to be brought to church. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You are to set aside a sum of money on the first day of the week. That's done at home. That is something that is private. That's something that you do. What sum of money do you uh, set aside? Uh, Paul doesn't give us a specific amount. He doesn't give us a percentage. He says, in keeping with his income. That's what the NIV has. The King James, I think, is much better here. As God hath prospered him. Some of the believers were slaves. They didn't have income. Okay. But whatever God had providentially provided in that previous week, some of that should be set aside for God's people in Jerusalem. And then he says, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. That is, every Sunday, the Corinthians, each one was supposed to set aside a, set of, uh, a sum of money. And obviously that would grow Sunday after Sunday. And then when Paul came, then it would all be collected and it would be sent to the believers in Jerusalem. Those are Paul's instructions. And again, I would, I would just remind you, this is not simply Paul's explanation. This is Paul correcting the Corinthians. Okay. Well, how does the money get to Jerusalem? They didn't have Western Union. Um, they didn't have the banking system that we do today. So in verses 3 and 4, Paul gives instructions. He anticipates that he will arrive in Corinth at which time he will write out a letter of introduction and give it to the men who are going to carry this money to Jerusalem. By the way, just to remind you, this is the second time in this letter that Paul has mentioned coming to Corinth. He's not simply writing letters. He will be there. But until he gets there, first he writes this letter. And you will notice in, verses, uh, in verse uh, 3, he doesn't use the word collection. He uses the word gift. Charis from which we get our word grace. These men from the church will take your gracious gift to the poor in Jerusalem. Well, why send certain men with this gift? Well, there are practical reasons. There are theological reasons. Practically speaking, uh, the amount of money would be considerable. And all of it in coin. They didn't have paper money back then. Okay. So all the money that had been set aside would be metal. And depending on how much it would be, one would assume it, well, no matter how much it was, it would be heavy. You'd need more than one person to go with it. It would be prudent to, take, to send more than one person for safety. It would also be prudent to make sure that the mission had integrity. Because if you only send one person with the money, how do you know that the amount of money that gets there is the same amount that was sent? Okay. This way you have people traveling together uh, to ensure the integrity of the mission. By the way, just a parenthesis, Paul hated to travel alone. Paul believed that he always needed somebody with him. That, that Christians belong together. And, and this idea of the Lone Ranger going off on my own, I'm going to take your gift to Jerusalem. Uh, that was not the way Paul saw things. He always wanted people with him. Theologically, there is a reason, I think, to do this. It would provide an opportunity for the two sides of the church to meet. 
the Gentile believers, and there were also Jewish believers, but the Gentile believers from Corinth would get to travel to Jerusalem and get to meet face to face these people for whom they had set this money aside. And there they would be able to discuss, and no doubt there would be many discussions about the grace of God in their lives, and how did you become a believer, and did you have any difficulties, and what have you learned, and what has God done in your life? You don't simply have a financial transaction taking place. You have people meeting face to face and sharing what God has done with them. Paul, in verse number four, is really ambiguous. because, And here I think we have the tension again. Um, I don't think the Corinthians really liked Paul at this point. And Paul's like, okay, if, if you think I should go along, uh, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem too. Okay, And if, if you think I should go along, fine, then, then I will go along with this gift. And in fact, uh, later on, he did. But we have to ask ourselves at this point, what's the big deal? What's all the fuss? What does this passage mean to the Corinthians? What does it mean for us today? Well, let's deal with the Corinthians first. First of all, it would seem that the Corinthians were less than enthusiastic about the collection for God's people. That's why they wrote to Paul about it. I don't think they want instructions. I think they've come to the conclusion they don't want to do this anymore. Um, and again, some people would disagree. They think I'm being harsh. But if you look at their track record of how they view themselves versus others, let me just read you some passages from chapter 4. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and that without us. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. <laughs> and that's how they felt about the apostles. Okay, how do you think they felt about poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem? I don't think they had much concern for them. In chapter 8, Paul must convince the Corinthians about their fellow believers in Corinth that they need to treat them with love and not simply based on knowledge. That the Corinthians have been acting thoughtlessly, not lovingly. And then in chapter 11, I don't know if you remember, Paul points out that their public worship has really gone wrong because before they would have the Lord's Supper, they would have a meal. And those who had money, those who were the wealthy ones, they were the ones sharing in the meal, and that those who were poor were not invited. They were basically left outside. As I said earlier, at the kids' table. You know, they're not even allowed to be a part of the meal. Now, if this is how they treat their own brothers and sisters whom they have seen, and they meet with every Sunday, how do you think they feel about the Jewish poor in Jerusalem? In chapter 11, Paul uses real irony, and I think it's appropriate for this passage. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's favor. In other words, if I'm doing well financially, God's blessing me. Oh, you're not doing so well? Well, I don't want to say anything, but I'm doing well and God's blessing me. Now, transfer that thinking to helping the poor in Jerusalem. God's blessing us. Apparently, he's not blessing them. What's up with that? And I'm supposed to help these people? It's their problem. They're not spiritual enough. They're not faithful enough. They don't have enough faith. 
Look at us. God has prospered us. And Paul has to tell these Corinthians, you need to set aside money for the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul does it in a very wonderful way. Every Sunday, if you can imagine going back to Corinth in the first century, there were two things that they were to do that were to remind them of something profoundly important. First of all, they were to set aside a sum of money, even before they got to church. This is not church money, this is set-aside money. And secondly, when they get to church, they have communion. And both of these acts are to tell them, you belong to something larger than yourself. The money you set aside for the poor should remind you, oh, I have brothers and sisters I've never met before. I belong to something, the church of God, the family of God, and I need to take care of those people. And then when they come to church and have communion, the cup reminds them of their union with Christ, but the bread reminds them of their union with one another. The bread represents the body of Christ. And Paul would say to them, you are the body of Christ. So twice, every Sunday, the Corinthians were to be reminded, you belong to other people. You're part of something larger than yourself. You belong to the family of God. What does this passage say for us today? Okay, well, first of all, this is not a passage about tithing, giving to missions, building funds, or anything like that at all. Okay. This is a unique project, a specific project, a project, by the way, which no longer exists, because in 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. So there's no need to care for the poor in Jerusalem because there's no Jerusalem. And by the way, just to give you some historical background so you don't think that all the poor people died, uh, an amazing thing happened between 65 and 70 AD. First of all, James, the head of the church, was martyred. He was put to death by the Jewish leaders. Secondly, the Roman legions came and surrounded the city of Jerusalem. So they're going to destroy the city. All the Christians are stuck there in the city of Jerusalem. But for some reason, and no one knows why, the Romans decided to leave. And so they left. The Christians remembered what Jesus had said, that when you see the city surrounded, get out. And so when the Romans left, all the Christians left Jerusalem. The Jews who did not leave ran after the Romans, attacked them. The Romans came back, surrounded the city again, and destroyed it. God's people were rescued uh, the providence of God. The poor in Jerusalem were able to get out in time. They were not destroyed with the city. Okay. But, let's go back. This, is, this passage has been used when people want you to give to church. This is not about giving to church. This is not about giving to missions, giving to a building fund, or anything like that. This is a unique case. That is not to say it doesn't have anything to say to us. From it we can learn the principle that we are to care for one another as we are one in Christ. This is something that Paul has been trying to impress upon the Corinthians. These people who are marked by divisions, who see some as strong and others as weak, who have gone to court against one another, who have not shared the Lord's table with one another, and who go ahead of one another in worship, that is, in terms of speaking in tongues. And Paul writes to these people, for we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. 
Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We need to hear that today, and we need to be reminded of that, that we do have an obligation to those in need. We are part of something much larger than ourselves. I don't think that our obligation is purely financial or material, but what I take from this passage is I need to be reminded that there are brothers and sisters of mine I've never met before. These are not the only Christians in the world in this building today. There are people all over this planet. And if I hear of them being in need, then I should have a sense that those are my brothers and sisters and that I need to help them. But I think above all, what I get from this passage and what I want you to take away from it is that we need to study the scriptures correctly. To study a passage within its context, immediate as well as general context. Otherwise, you might be like Homer Simpson and, oh, it's about money again. They're always talking about money. Sadly, asking for money is often what people most often associate with the church. And then we have all the scandals that have arisen in the church tied to money. From the sale of indulgences in the Middle Ages before the Reformation to the pitches from TV evangelists. We don't want to hear anything about money anymore. But we need to be careful. Let's not close our ears, our minds. Let's study what the scriptures say. When we come on something that talks about money, let's like, I've heard enough about money, thank you. Let's look at it and see it in its appropriate context. In this passage, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you have brothers and sisters over in Palestine, and they need your help. You belong to the same family. They are God's people. You are God's people. And so you need to set aside money privately on Sunday to remind yourself I belong to God's people. And then Paul says, when I come, we'll bring it all together. We'll send some trustworthy men and we will send it to those who are in need. I find this passage, this brief passage, to be a wonderful reminder that we are not simply to read the Bible, but we are to study it, that we might understand it correctly. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time and a culture in which individualism has become raised almost to the level of virtue. It doesn't help that our nature tends to be self-centered and we want to talk about ourselves. Here we are reminded that we belong to something much larger, to the Corinthians who were so individualistic. They had brothers and sisters elsewhere who were in need and they were to help them. We as well have brothers and sisters. And when we become aware of their need, may we not be hard-hearted, close-fisted, but generous to those who are in need. And I suspect, I look over this congregation, that people here are generous. But there's something more than generosity here. It is a sense of unity, of union of saying to others, you are my brother, 
you are my sister. We thank you for your word and how precious it is. What a wonderful reminder that we are not simply to sort of read it through and assume that we know what it says, but to study it and then apply it to our lives. I thank you for this beautiful day on which we've come together to worship you. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.